This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We are coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa and our frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa and on Channel 902 on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Spumela Lezondi and I'm with Asanda Matawunyane, Wesane Matebula and Figile Lingwati. Your top stories. The government of Cameroon says the multinational forces have arrested five Boko Haram leaders. Uganda's decision to occasionally shut down social media causes an uproar. In economics, a national bank of Egypt sells 169 million US dollars worth of special certificates to attract foreign currency. And in sports, South African side Mamelo de Sundowns arrive in Ghana for the second leg of their African Confederation Cup tie. Here's Asanda Matsaunyano with your news. Thanks, Pumelele. Good afternoon. A suicide bomber has blown himself up at a security headquarters in the southern Yemeni city of Mukalla, killing and wounding several people. This comes a day after an Islamic State suicide bombing killed 25 police recruits there. Over a year of devastating civil war in Yemen has given al-Qaeda and Islamic State militants unprecedented freedom to operate, and both groups have carried out a spate of bombing and shooting attacks on Yemeni and Gulf Arab forces in the country. A Swedish court has sentenced a 61-year-old man to life in prison for genocide in Rwanda in 1994, the second such case brought by the Nordic country over crimes during the conflict. Kleva Berenkidi, a Swedish citizen originally from Rwanda, was convicted of genocide and gross crime under international law consisting of murder, attempted murder and kidnapping in Rwanda. The court has also awarded 15 crime victims damages ranging from 3.7 to 12 million US dollars. It is the first time a Swedish court has awarded damages to victims of genocide. South Africa's anti-racism activists group has called for a harsher punishment against anyone found promoting racism. This after a Pretoria court granted bail to a 21-year-old man who allegedly called a black magistrate the K-word before smashing the windows of his car with a hammer. Jakobus Fermark has been granted a 3,000 rand bail. Interpol ambassador for turnback crime, Andy Mashaile, says they condemn racism in all strongest possible terms. One, we believe that racism is evil and satanic. To all victims of racism, particularly when they come from the background that we come from, there of being South Africans who are ready and willing to build a new South Africa. We will support those victims of racism. We will stand, we are here to support the magistrate. Uh, we also particularly are here to support the rights of a minor, the 12-year-old, who was violated um, in the presence of the father who deserves uh, to be protected by all South Africans. About 300 opposition protesters in Kenya have rallied to demand the scrapping of an election oversight body they say is biased 
and for its replacement. Police backed by trucks with water cannon flanked the protesters gathered outside the Independent Electoral and Boundaries Commission, the IEBC. Kenya does not hold its next presidential and parliamentary polls until August 2017, but politicians are already trying to galvanize their supporters in a nation where violence erupted after the 2007 vote and the opposition disputed the 2013 result. The opposition, CORD coalition led by Raila Odinga, accuses the IEBC of bias and says its members should quit. IEBC officials have dismissed the charge. Finally, Tanzania has removed more than 10,000 ghost workers from its public sector payroll after a nationwide audit found a fraud cost the government over 2 million U.S. dollars a month. Government officials say the payroll audit is continuing and more non-existent workers are expected to be found. Prime Minister Kasim Majaliwa says the fight against corruption is top priority for the Tanzanian government. President John Magufuli ordered the national audit in March as part of of a wider corruption crackdown. For Channel Africa News, I'm Asanda Matsaunyani. It is 17.05 Central African time. Thank you very much, Asanda, for that update. Let's start in Cameroon, where the government says the multinational forces fighting Boko Haram terrorists have arrested five of the group's leaders and freed dozens of captive women and children. The news came as French President Francois Hollande over the weekend joined several West African leaders at a summit in Abuja, the Nigerian capital, where they discussed progress in the fight against Boko Haram and how to resolve the humanitarian crisis it has created. The extremist group has forced more than 2 million people to flee their homes, some across borders. Mokikinzeka is near Wunde. Cameroon's communication minister and government spokesperson, Isa Chiruma, says a thousand troops of the multinational joint task force fighting Boko Haram organized systematic raids on Boko Haram bases in Madawaya Forest May 10 to 12 killing 58 Boko Haram fighters. Isa Chiruma says 15 Nigerian women, three Cameroonian women, and 28 children who had been held captive in the Boko Haram stronghold were freed and taken to Cameroon. He says huge quantities of war weapons were either destroyed or seized. The minister says five leaders of the terrorist group, including the traditional leader of Kumshe, an enemy of the terrorist group, were arrested alongside dozens of supporters. Après les dernières opérations victorieuses menées dans les localités de Goshe et de Kumshe en territoire nigérian, he says after a recent successful operation in Goshe and Kumche on the Nigerian territory, so many Boko Haram fighters escaped to Madawaya Forest in Nigeria and created camps for their fighters where they also trained suicide bombers, especially young women and girls. 
He says the destruction of their training camps have made the governments of Cameroon and Nigeria to realize that the forest served as the main training ground for suicide bombers and child fighters that regularly attacked the two countries. He says none of the Cameroon and Nigerian forces were killed. Aucune perte n'a été enregistrée dans les rangs de nos forces de défense. Cameroon believes the militants have resorted to suicide bombings because their firepower has been drastically reduced following ceaseless attacks on their stronghold since December 2015 by a 8,000-strong multinational joint task force with troops from Cameroon, Nigeria, Chad, Benin, and Niger. The United Nations reports that Boko Haram's six-year insurgency has killed more than 25,000 people and displaced more than 2.5 million. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzika in Yawundi. It's 17.08 Central African Time. You still listen to Africa Digest on Child Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Spumela Lezondi and I am with you until 1800 hours. You can block social media sites including Twitter, Facebook and WhatsApp before the swearing-in ceremony on Thursday of President Yoweri Museveni whose re-election sparked protests and a crackdown on dissent. Museveni, who is now 71 years old, officially won 60% of the vote in February, allowing him to take part uh, to take rather on another term and extend his uh, rule to 35 years. The opposition cried foul and protests broke out, leading to some clashes uh, between the police and dozens of arrests and citizens there clashing with the police. Commentator Levi Kabuato joins us on the line. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa. Thank you, uh, Spamilele. Uh, good evening to your listeners. Uh, now, what do we know about social media blockages that happen in Uganda? Uh, so what we know right now is that uh, citizens were not able to access uh, social media sites for a period of time, uh, or just over 24 hours uh, in the country, as the inauguration uh, of President uh, Museveni was uh, taking place. Um, this was attributed to a national threat, but this threat has remained undefined, so we can't really tell what exactly uh, it was. But there was communication from the mobile phone op- operators to their clients telling them that they will suspend uh, access to social media because they had been requested to do so by the regulator. Mm. Um, so the instruction came from the regulator, you say? Yes, yes, yes. It is the regulator which instructed the mobile uh, phone operators to suspend uh, these services. Um, quite coincidentally, if you want to call it a coincidence, uh, the inauguration uh, of uh, President Museveni was going on. We also know, of course, that during uh, election time in Uganda, uh, the same services were also suspended again on that very same uh, issue uh, of a national, a very loosely defined um, national threat. Why do you say that this national threat that the government talks about is loosely defined? I think there are uh, parameters, uh, you know, to which you can, you know, invoke uh, such drastic measures as we saw in uh, in Uganda, and there is also a process that you uh, you must follow if you are the state and also if you are 
uh, a regulator and a company that would uh, potentially be expected to comply with uh, such a, uh, an instruction. Uh, these things have not been laid clear. We do not know exactly you know, what constitutes uh, the nature of the threat and does it warrant, uh, therefore, the suspension of these services, which are then a direct uh, violation of uh, the right to freedom of expression, the right to communicate, uh, as it were. So you basically need to warrant or to support uh, this measure by you know, uh, allowing citizens an opportunity to interrogate uh, what exactly is going on. Is it really necessary uh, for that to happen? Uh, and therefore, you know, citizens would say, we understand uh, this happens, or no, we actually don't understand. So there is an underlying political um, issue here at hand, given what we saw during the elections and given what we saw uh, during the, uh, the inauguration. And one can conclude to say it was basically to uh, stop citizens from discussing or stop citizens from sharing information that maybe the state uh, deemed was not going to uh, favor the conditions of the day. Uh, but why do you think Uganda would go to that extent? Because during election time and during inauguration time in any country, you'd um, see a lot of activity on social media around the event of inaugurating a president or around the uh, the way and the manner in which people are voting or feel about election. But why is Uganda blocking that, do you think? Absolutely, removing or uh, you know blocking your, your your citizens from enjoying this right to express themselves on such a, a occasion that should warrant a celebration really of democracy speaks volumes about um, President uh, Yoweri Museveni. So we know, of course, that the uh, political tensions in the country. We know that um, uh, the main opposition leader has been under house arrest for the longest time since that election. He's been. Uh, taken in and out of uh, various police stations. So there's obviously uh, a very uh, volatile political environment uh, prevailing in Uganda at the moment. And perhaps uh, the government was really just trying to save its face, uh, but it ended up doing you know, the total opposite of that in trying to get people not to communicate or people not to express and share uh, their views on these um on, on these social media uh, sites. So it's, it's, it's also quite political uh, in nature, uh, as it were. And uh, the, the businesses that operate mobile telephony in Uganda were perhaps would say they were left with very little choice and they had to comply with, uh, with what the regulator said in order maybe to save their licenses or to risk, uh, not to risk uh, further sanction. Uh, but someone might say, someone else might say, it's just social media. What's the big deal? The big deal is that uh, Uganda says it uh, claims to be a democracy, and uh, but it, these instances show that it's not living up uh, to that billing. You cannot uh, uh, deny people the right to communicate and claim that you are still in a in a democracy, uh, so to speak. You cannot uh, say uh, you know you are looking out for citizens by protecting them from an Im- uh, imminent uh, national threat, and not define what that threat is to them, and not tell them what they need to do in order to help avert um, that threat, uh, as it were. So th- these are v- contradictions uh, coming from the uh, from the state, uh, coming from the government uh, in Uganda, and uh, they speak to 
uh, an undermining of uh, critical uh, democratic uh, rights, uh, of which in this case it's freedom of expression. So it's really um, unjustifiable. It uh, undermines uh, mm-hmm. people's participation uh, in democratic processes such as uh, elections, and it's really sent a very negative message, uh, yes. a very neg- negative message across uh, to the continent. All right, so I'm going to ask you to stay on the line. We have to take a short break. Your time is 17.15 Central African time. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And the program you're listening to is Africa Digest. Uh, now, before the break, I was joined by Levi Kabato, who is uh, talking to me about uh, Uganda blocking social media sites, including Twitter, Facebook, and WhatsApp, before the swearing-in ceremony on Thursday of President Yoweri Museveni. Now, Kabato has been saying that it's a, it's a human right violation. Um, uh, now, Levi, you are saying that... Um, they're blocking the rights of citizens to communicate. But then at the same time, supporters of President Yoweri Museveni would also be blocked if social media is blocked. So it's not just opposition supporters. Uh, absolutely not. It's not just uh, the supporters who would, you'd say maybe opposition uh, supporters, uh, so to speak. Uh, because there's already uh, the political victory in this instance uh, has already been scored. What to uh, what the governments or governments that tend to do this uh, is that they want to prevent any alternative uh, information from being shared or distributed uh, or even being generated. Um, uh, you know, so they want to be in control of the narrative at all times. Uh, remember, you had some 50 plus, uh, if, if I'm correct, heads of state uh, in, in, in Uganda. And you then also had citizens of those countries that were represented by those heads of state in those countries. So there was particular interest in what was going on uh, in Uganda, not just uh, in Uganda itself, but uh, from people uh, in other countries. And we were denied, uh, certainly, uh, the first-hand information, reliable first-hand information from the people who were right there in Uganda, simply because they could not communicate with the outside world. So what this does to the reputation of, uh, of the country, what this uh, shows to the rest of the world is that although Uganda might be claiming that, you know, we're democratic, Museveni might be claiming that I won, you know, a popular vote, but why then would you go to the length of shutting down uh, access for your citizens to communicate with the outside world if you are fairly confident uh, in your victory. So these are the contradictions that are coming out, and this is what would lead um, a lot of people to conclude that the move was political and not necessarily arising 
from uh, a national security threat, which we still do not know um, about. Uh, we also do know that in Uganda, the media was asked or was told to limit its coverage or not cover um, opposition leader Kiza Besige and his political party. Um, and we also do know that there are protests in um, Kampala in the capital last week leading up to the inauguration of the president. Do you think that there's a link between the social media blockage and those events? Yes, uh, th- there is uh, a link uh, in that. Uh, so basically... You- we should get our cue from what is uh, the treatment uh, that uh, Kiza Besige is receiving. And that would uh, sort of become a perfect metaphor of what's happening to the rest of the citizens, that they are living uh, in, in, in this state where you, know, you, you do not know what the next move uh, from government is. So you're constantly under surveillance, as Kiza Besige is. You're constantly being harassed or monitored. Um, of course, we know that there are police uh, who are camped outside Kiza uh, Besige's uh, residence. We know that um, he has been taken in and out of various uh, police stations. And, of course, we know that he attempted to have that uh, mock uh, inauguration, uh, as it were, which eventually led to him uh, being charged uh, with treason. So basically what you can you know, surmise from all of this is that, uh, that there is no confidence uh, from the state. The state is sort of suggesting that you know, it does, doesn't have confidence in the citizenry. It doesn't have confidence in the information systems uh, that are being run uh, in Uganda and wants to be in total control of the narrative and wants to be in total control uh, of the networks so that at least you know, it gets to know or monitor what's uh, going out there. So even though now people are able to tweet, they have uh, Facebook, Twitter, and your Instagrams available back to them, it still doesn't inspire much confidence to say what, to what lengths uh, is the government then prepared to go in terms of you know, saying, okay, fine, we'll allow you access, but we will still monitor uh, your communications. We will still look at uh, whom you're talking to, what you're saying. So it's things that we don't currently know uh, but we can suspect that definitely would be going on beyond uh, the blocking of the access and the allowing uh, of it thereafter. Mm. Um, but the government can't do this on its own. It has to work with network providers. Absolutely. And uh, so what the message you hear from the network providers is that we are bound by rules. Uh, if we don't uh, comply with the rules, then we risk uh, losing our licenses or we risk then uh, losing our business. So in this regard, business would seem to side more with uh, with the government, and it would uh, seem as if they are also uh, complicit in undermining uh, these freedoms. But there is a, a business case to consider. So uh, businesses would mostly just comply because they want to still operate in the country. They still want to make uh, profits uh, in the country. So this is where we begin to say to your MTNs and your Airtels that, you know, can you consider uh, certain things? And indeed, there are frameworks uh, from the United Nations to even uh, continental frameworks that guide the practice of human rights and the conduct of business um, in various countries. So we begin to then encourage them to look at this and see how they can also contribute um, in uh, not undermining uh, people's rights, uh, fundamental human rights, but become 
not human rights defenders per se, but people who can actually uh, promote, people who can use their systems and networks to defend the integrity uh, of human rights, to defend um, the principle you know, of communication, which is basically allowing people as much freedom uh, as possible. So there is, there is something to say about uh, businesses, uh, not just in Uganda, but across Africa, especially those uh, in the ICT sector, and how they can also help uh, advance human rights. Mm. But are, are they not then? Should they do what you, you're suggesting um, and maybe refuse because of and, and cite human rights? Will they not run the risk of being kicked out of the country um, and one, not being able to make profits within the country and two, um, also then if they get kicked out, um, are blocking citizens from having um, access to social media forever really because Uganda can decide that um, all these providers are kicked out and then they're going to get a provider that's going to um, a block social media in the country. That is very true. That, 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 that is very true. And I think uh, these uh, are the things that we really need to negotiate and get uh, citizens as well to air their voices uh, on this. It's not a very straightforward uh, thing because the Internet itself, the way it's structured, is a very diverse uh, platform, uh, you know, so you, from software to hardware and to all of these other things that um, act within. I, I can tell you that even within the framework of uh, Internet governance itself globally, there are so many uh, contestations um, that arise. But I think, you know, with this trend, what we are seeing is that we need to have a lot of uh, the users, so the people who use uh, these tools, uh, the people who use social media, the people who use their phones to communicate, need them to become aware of what's really going on beyond your being a- able to send a tweet, your uh, you're being able to post a picture on Facebook. We need to raise uh, awareness and consciousness uh, within people to then say, there is something else that you need to understand about these networks, and it is that you know it can be taken away from you, and it can be taken away from you uh, forever. So how do you defend that, or how do you prevent that uh, from happening. I think that's a much more broader conversation. And I think if people genuinely stand up and express themselves and say, we are not going to tolerate this, businesses will be able to listen. Governments will be able uh, to listen. We don't see a lot of that happening because when you get blocked, uh, as uh, Spumelela, or when I, when I get blocked, we take it as an individual move from the government. We don't look at it as something that's quite um, holistic. So I think as end users, um, as clients of these uh, service providers, as people who are bound by rules, by legislation of our countries, we then need to make uh, the demands and even make um, the, the, the risk or the, the sanction for undermining the, our freedoms uh, much higher for any government and for any business so that next time when this is about to happen, they will reconsider and say our client or the people who use our services are going to punish us for doing something like that. And maybe therefore, uh, maybe then we'll be able to see a difference in, the, in, in how the power is distributed. All right. Thank you very much for joining us.
Many thanks. All right, Levi Kabato there joining us on the line. He is in Johannesburg. Um, and we are talking about Uganda blocking social media. And that includes Twitter, Facebook, and WhatsApp. This was leading up to the inauguration of President Yoweri Museveni last week. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Right, the survey released by the PowerPoint system in South Africa has revealed that 62% of students who are in their third or last year in universities are not confident in exploring entrepreneurial opportunities. The 2016 Student Confidence Index has surveyed over 1,500 students. The survey shows that the majority of them are confident in opportunities available to them in the formal sector, while 60% of the students indicate that it's more important for them to secure employment than to obtain a degree. More from the technical marketing specialist at PPS, Mutabi Nomvete. PPS is an insurance company that caters actually exclusively for graduate professionals. Meaning that the market that we look at is people who have completed at least their, at least a four-year degree. So that would be people like your lawyers, accountants, doctors, engineers. And so that's the exclusive market that we operate in and we have to live in existence for 75 years. What are the reasons for students' confidence in employment opportunities in the formal sector than in starting their own businesses? They don't feel equipped enough to start their own business. Because our market caters mostly at, for example, doctors and dentists make up the biggest chunk of our membership. So obviously they need to go first through their years of internship, which is two or three years. But we do know that a lot of them thereafter would not stay in state employment. They would probably seek employment either at a big clinic or really like a medic clinic or need care or something, or they would want to go private. But in school, they're only taught the theoretical of being a doctor. So there's definitely a lack of confidence because they haven't been exposed to that. The main reason being, I think, if you look at the results that were released by Stats SA last week, where unemployment numbers are above 27% now, if that itself is not a compelling enough reason, then I don't know what will be. Unemployment in South Africa has been high for a very long time, and it will take equally long for it to drop. So we have to start looking at different ways of getting people into the system. And I think for too long, we were told that the system is formal employment where somebody hires you and you work. And we have to change our mindset to say, what can I do in my little space, in my little way, to make sure that I keep myself employable and I keep myself productive? Because those days of relying on somebody else to do that for you, that has died. The only way that we're going to actually even grow the South African economy is by having more entrepreneurs, because current corporate and government can't absorb more people. That is a reality that we're facing. And like I say, that situation, I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. So we do need to start thinking and encouraging people to think differently. In universities, what measures can be put in place to make sure that the students are better equipped and more confident in being entrepreneurs? For one, entrepreneurship, I believe, has to be taught at all levels in tertiary, whichever course that anybody's doing. So be it before medicine, be it for plumbing, to entrepreneurship, they have to start their own business. But nobody teaches them those business skills. And therefore, when they do then start their own business, it falls because they don't have the basis of, okay, where do I set up shop, for example? How many people do I need to employ? At which point do I know how many people I need to employ? There is Mutabinom Vete, a technical marketing specialist at PPS, talking to Nosi Lezuma. It's 17.30 Central African Time. It's your news headlines with Asanda Matawanyan.
Thanks, Pumelele. A suicide bomber blows, blows himself up at a security headquarters in the southern Yemeni city of Mukalla, killing and wounding several people. A Swedish court has sentenced a 61-year-old man to life in prison for genocide in Rwanda in 1994, and protesters in Kenya rally to demand the scrapping of an election oversight body they say is biased and for its replacement. In news headlines here on Channel Africa. Thank you very much, Asanda, for that update. It's 17.31 Central African time. Now, Egyptian courts have a single day convicted 152 protesters for breaking a law that effectively bans demonstrations, sentencing them to up to five years in prison in a series of short mass trials. The cases against the 152 convicted on Saturday are rooted in events on April 25 when police stifled a planned demonstrations called to protest the government's surrender to Saudi Arabia of two Red Sea islands under a deal negotiated in near total secrecy. Police arrested more than 1,200 people during the run-up to April 25 and on the day, but released more of them without charge. However, nearly 300 were referred to trial for breaking the 2013 protest law decried by rights groups at home and abroad. Ibrahim Dean is a researcher with the Afro-Middle East Center, and he explains about the deal that sparked these protests. Okay, we need to just start just a little bit before the deal. You know, after the military oust of the Mursi regime in Egypt, you know, one of the big backers of Abdul Fattah al-Sisi's you know, military ouster was the Saudi regime. And the Saudi regime backed the Egyptians, you know, to the value of roughly 15 to $20 billion, you know, in assistance. And so what happened was, you know, in the most recent visit that Soman undertook to Egypt, uh, Sisi then handed over sovereignty of two islands, Kiran and Sanafir. These two islands are, you know, just near the mouth of Aqaba, very close to the Israelis. It's, it's, it's islands between Egypt and, and Saudi Arabia. These islands were initially Saudi territory, however, you know, given to Egypt in the 1950s uh, for protection purposes. So what this deal basically is, is basically reasserting the sovereignty of these islands back to Saudi Arabia from Egypt. And, you know, most people are criticizing this deal because one is, um, it smells, looks as if, you know, the, the islands are priced that the Sisi regime paid for support. And two, because Egyptians have, at least in the past two years, become very nationalistic, and Sisi is one of his main reasons for overthrowing Morsi was, you know, apparently blaming Morsi for supposedly or having the intention of giving Sinai over to Hamas. So, you know, basically he's being criticized of the same or for the same things that he basically used as justification for ousting, you know, former President Morsi. And that's why this deal has been or is being criticized so much. Now, why is this deal so important to the LCC regime? Just elaborate. Necessarily important to the Sisi regime. The islands are uninhabited islands. You know, they don't possess much benefit, a bit of strategic benefit in that any ship going to Israel needs to go past those islands, especially to the port of Elot. But it's important to the Sisi regime in that it secures it more support from the Saudis. So relations have been a bit cooler between Saudi Arabia and uh, Egypt since Salman, you know, ascended to the helm, mainly because of Sisi's, um, you know, uh, disregard for Gulf regimes, bad relations between Salman and, and, and Sisi. 
And so these islands, the handovers for these islands, have actually you know, aimed to smooth out this Egypt-Saudi relations. And Egypt still requires Saudi assistance because currently the Egyptian economy is struggling. You know, as we're seeing protests are heightened, uh, the war in Sinai is still going on. And so without resources, Sisi's regime will fall under a lot of threat, will fall under more threat. And, and that's why the handing over of these islands to the Saudis was so important for Sisi. But from a strategic perspective, I mean, it, it's not, you know, not a big price to pay for the Saudi support. Now, the thing is now the conviction of these protesters for breaking a law that apparently effectively bans demonstrations. Tell us more about this law. Does it apply to demonstrations that have not received permission from the authorities or does it apply to any demonstrations? You know, meaning demonstrations of, or protests of any kind are illegal now. This law was passed in 2013, 2014, you know, after the coup. And this law basically bans any protests that haven't been granted authority or, you know, granted permission from the authorities. And it's it's a law that has been selectively enforced. You know, it's been enforced. It's just another way of the CC regime cracking down on dissent. However, what's happened in this case is that the dissent has been a lot more than what was a lot more and by a lot, you know, a lot of a, a more broader coalition or more broader set of actors than was previously. And that's the issue with these protests, that the journalists have joined in. And, you know, the regime has tried to issue a gag order on discussions of this islands to try and quell dissent, but it's not seeming to work. And that's why they've had to enforce this law, which is a law aimed at baffling dissent. And what's happened now is that, unfortunately or fortunately, I mean, whichever way you're looking at it, it seems now, finally, this fear barrier has been broken again, and the law is not actually working. And so it's just fueling more protests. But now, isn't it of grave concern that the judge apparently evicted the press, that he denied families access to the defendants? Isn't it of grave concern that this is actually happening? I mean, I think it, it, it is of great concern. And, you know, we do need to understand that when Sisi came into power, there were three ways or pillars on which he built his power, his regime. One was the press, two was the judiciary, and three was the military. So all these worked for the regime. So the judiciary, for example, just in 2014, 2015, sentenced to death hundreds of brotherhood trialists on like day-long trials, you know, like with shoddy, shoddy is not even, you know, a word to describe how symbolic the trial processes were. So the judiciary, you know, as we've come to see, is actually part of the regime. It's not an independent actor. And that's why, you know, it's not a surprising thing that the judiciary is acting the way it has been acting. It, it has a history from the past two years. And so what is, you know, surprising is that, you know, one key cog of this or two key cogs of CC's uh, rule, which is the press and private business, are actually now turning against the regime. And so in a sense, the regime is now slowly fragmenting. Ibrahim Dean is a researcher with the Afro Middle East Center speaking to Jose Dengake. Now, Greenpeace condemns the anti-renewable energy propaganda coming from South Africa's utility ESCOM in the strongest terms at a time when renewable energy pro- projects, projects rather, have added more than 1,800 megawatts of installed capacity to the grid in just two years. Penny Jane Cook, climate and energy campaigner for Greenpeace Africa, explains. So, for 
from Greenpeace's perspective, there are many barriers that still exist to renewable energy in South Africa. Our large-scale renewable energy project, which is the Renewable Energy Independent Power Producers Procurement Program that is run by the Department of Energy, has been lauded internationally as a great success story for renewable energy. And in terms of power that's added to the grid, that program has done very well. There's still many barriers that exist, and those barriers are largely put in place by the Department of Energy. The targets that the Department of Energy has put in place for large-scale renewables are not ambitious. The process is very opaque, and it's also a very expensive process. So effectively, what that's done due to the lack of ambition and uncertainty is it's pushed out many of the local role players in South Africa. So we see a lot of international companies coming in and pushing out our local producers, and they are the ones who are actually developing these projects as opposed to South African companies. The uncertainty around renewable energy has also led to the job market and local manufacturing not taking off as it should. Renewable energy has the ability to create a lot of jobs, a lot of new jobs for South Africa. But unless our government really commits to renewable energy and removes the barriers and starts showing some serious ambition around renewable energy, we won't see local manufacture taking place and we won't see the kind of jobs being created that renewable energy can create. Looking at this investment in coal in particular, how are companies investing or disinvesting in South Africa with regards to coal companies? The coal industry is really big in South Africa, and it's what we've based our economy on. Um, To date, South Africa has benefited largely due to the very inexpensive and abundant source of energy, which is through coal energy. So our economy has been based on a fossil fuel economy. And so what we see is that we are a largely polluting and a very dirty economy. And globally, what we're seeing happen now is that the global economy is moving away from fossil fuels and to cleaner forms of energy. So basically what that means for South Africa is that if we don't start moving from our pathway of fossil fuels and start moving towards renewable energy, that we're going to be left behind in terms of the global economy. So any assets that we have in fossil fuel companies and in coal mining and in power generation through coal will actually become stranded assets and it will be even more detrimental towards our economy. Now, looking at ESCOM as one of the companies that are responsible for our energy in South Africa, how has it invested in renewable energy? I think what's most important to note is that ESCOM is almost entirely responsible for our energy because they are a monopoly and because they're a state-owned monopoly. They really play a massive role in energy in South Africa and the decisions they take around energy really impact all South Africans. And for them to come out and say things around renewables being a disappointment, I think it's a much fairer comment to say that ESCOM has firstly disappointed the renewable energy industry industry and also has disappointed many South Africans. In terms of their investments to date in renewables, they've really been marginal. They're very quick to talk about the two projects that they've rolled out in terms of renewable energy investments, but both of those were very unambitious. They were both done more as sort of pilot projects where they weren't taken particularly seriously. So ESCOM certainly hasn't taken the lead in really investing in renewable energy in this country. And if we're going to allow for all South Africans to benefit from renewable energy and for us to actually have a choice in terms of energy system, then ESCOM really needs to up commitment and certainly put a lot more investment into renewable energy projects. So how much uh, capacity has renewable energy contributed so far to the South African grid? So that's what is a really good news story. Through the independent power producers, which are all these independent companies, 
4% of our actual capacity on the grid has come from renewable energies in two and a half years. And I know 4% might not sound like a lot, but if you think that that is online and functioning within two and a half years compared to the amount of time it takes to build a coal-fired power station or a nuclear power station, it really is remarkable how quickly renewable energy can actually come on the grid. And what's also remarkable is that all of those projects have happened on time and on budget, which is definitely not something that coal or nuclear can claim globally, let alone in South Africa. So are we looking to a situation whereby this power production in South Africa is going to be decentralized? That is what our government should be moving towards, decentralized, small-scale generation that happens close to where people are actually wanting to use energy is really where grids should be moving internationally. It doesn't make any sense to be generating electricity in one part of the country and then moving it over hundreds of kilometers to where it's needed because that obviously leads to all sorts of inefficiencies and lots of losses in terms of energy production. So now we have this technology in the form of solar and wind that allows you to generate electricity close to where you actually need to use it. It's a huge game changer for the energy sector. And we really need to be putting investments in the right places in our country to start moving our grid away from this massive, large-scale grid to something more decentralized that can then work well with renewable energy. How would this involve the local communities in the areas that they live with regards to generating their own energy. So once again, in terms of community energy, that's where we really need government and business in South Africa to start making more commitments to renewable energy because what that will do is it will really open up the market to make it more feasible for everyday South Africans to be able to afford renewable energy. In terms of communities in South Africa that currently don't have access to the grid, the government's always very quick to say that they need to build all of these coal-fired power stations because of energy access and because there's so many South Africans that don't have access. But the reality is that the big grids that we currently rely on and grid-tied energy won't be reaching those communities in the next decade or two, irrespective of how many coal-fired power stations ESCOM build. The grid is just not going to expand quickly enough. So what we really need to be focusing on and relying on is small-scale embedded generation and small-scale renewable energy technologies that can actually be put into these communities to give them power. So that's really where the focus needs to be going forward. Penny Jane Cook is a climate and energy campaigner for Greenpeace Africa, talking to Wandile Kalipa. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance, Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's time for your economic news with Wissana Matabula.
Good evening. Thanks, as Pumelele. Zimbabwe revised its economic growth forecast to 1.4% in 2016 from an initial focus of 2.7% following a devastating drought and weak commodity prices. In an undated bulletin for the January to March quarter, the finance ministry put its new growth target in line with that of International Monetary Fund and World Bank. And Burundi's year-on-year inflation eased 2.6% from April, uh, from 4.3% in March, thanks to a significant fall in food costs. Food inflation in the year to April slowed to 2.5% from 6.4% in the previous month. Burundi has been grappling with unrest for more than a year, mainly in the capital, Bunjumbura. Western donors have suspended vital aid, leaving the poor nation more dependent on its modest coffee and tea exports and on domestic tax revenues. Burundi's economy has shrunk by 7.2% in 2015 and it's expected to expand by 3.4% this year. To Ghana now, where the central bank kept its benchmark interest rate at sky-high 26% as expected, citing balanced inflation and growth risks. The central bank has gradually increased its benchmark interest rate since May 2011, when it stood at 13% in a bid to curb inflation in line with its core mandate. Alongside, the SEDI currency has also prevented uh, the central bank from thinking about reducing rates. Ghana was for years one of Africa's fastest-growing economies due to its exports of uh, gold, cocoa and oil, but growth rates have tumbled since 2014 on a slump in global commodity prices and a fiscal crisis. WhatsApp's move uh, to launch a desktop applications is a stepping stone to ma- making the platform more of a work tool than a consumer communications network. This according to Africa analysis tech expert Dobek Pata. The Facebook-owned social network service recently announced its desktop applications for Windows and Mac devices. Peta says in the past, companies have blocked applications such as Facebook and YouTube, which might be the case with WhatsApp. But the minute they realize their importance, that may change. As we move into bringing your own device and your own applications environment in the workspace, then companies will begin to recognize that it is becoming work tool. And, and then the company policy will shift people who would find it more efficient because in a desktop environment, you're able to attach documents and other files that you can attach, send it across to users on the other side, just like Skype for businesses, for instance. To Nigeria, annual inflation in the this, uh, West African country quickened to a near-year high of 13.7% in April, in part due to rising petrol and electricity prices, stoking expectations of another rate hike. Nigeria's worst economic crisis in decades has been driven by a sharp drop in oil prices that has less government revenues since the country relies on crude sales for around 70% of national income. Gross domestic product growth was just 2.8% last year. Financial indicators, the dollar 1539, South African rents 10.86, Botswana Pula, and 9.94, Zambian Kwacha. Also trading at 0.69 to the British pound and 0.88 against the euro. Commodities, gold $1,275, platinum at $1,050 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil at $48.45 per barrel. That's your economics news for now.
Thank you very much, Usani. At 17.50 Central African time, Figile is in studio with your sports news. Hello, Figile. Good evening, Baba. All right. In our update this hour, we're kicking off with Athletics News, where the Kenyan government through the Deputy President William Ruto, has spelled commitment to meeting WADA's demands. While says Sebastian Ko, the IWAF president, assured Kenya that the country will not miss Olympics because it is until the end of 2016 to get sorted. Kenya's Deputy President William Ruto explains. The government of Kenya is going to ensure that whatever the issues that have been raised by the World Anti-Tobing Agency, we are going to make sure that we sort out those issues and agree with the anti-doping agency on every issue so that our athletes continue their journey to show their expertise and their talent in participating in world championships, in the Olympics and in every other game that is going to take place around the globe. And the IWF president says Sebastian Ko says Kenya and other countries are under their watch. Kenya, Ukraine and Belarus have been put on an IAAF monitoring list for 2016 to ensure their national anti-doping programs are significantly strengthened and their journey to compliance completed by the end of this year. In football news, newly crowned South African Absa Premiership champions Mamelodi Sundowns have arrived in Ghana for the second leg of the African Confederations Cup fourth round tie against host Mediama SC. Sundowns take a 3-1 lead from the first leg in Pretoria on Wednesday's game at the Ipisong Sports Stadium in Sekundi with a kickoff at 5 p.m. South African time. They take on a Ghanaian side in some turmoil after the Swedish coach Tom Strand left the club in controversial circumstances after the loss in South Africa. And in rugby news, the pools for round 10 of the HSBC Sevens World Series in London have been drawn with the Bleds box in Pool A along with Paris Sevens winners Samoa. Pool A is rounded out by the USA and Canada, both very dangerous opponents in the Sevens rugby. Pool B sees Paris losing finalists, Fiji drawn with Australia, England and Wales, while Pool C includes France, Kenya, Scotland and Portugal. New Zealand head up Pool D and are joined by Argentina, Russia and Brazil. The three-day tournament starts on the 21st of May. And finally, with golf news, Korea's Jae-hoon Wang has won for the second successive week on the European Tour after a one-shot victory in the Afrasia Bank Mauritius Open. Nick Dai reports. Well, Korea's Jung-hoon Wang has won the Afrasia Bank Mauritius Open after a stunning turnaround. It was Sidi Garakman from Bangladesh that had led all day until the 16th hole, a three-shot advantage, but then he suddenly double bogeyed 16, bogeyed 17, and the advantage was gone. They were level heading up the 18th. Wang sunk a short putt for birdie, while Rackman saw his chip from off the green lip out. He then missed a 10-foot putt and had to be content for second place. It means the 20-year-old Korean has now won back-to-back tournaments after his triumph at the Trophy Hassan Dirt in Morocco last week. That's the Sport News this hour. This is Africa Digest.
Let's talk about top stories. The government of Cameroon says the multinational forces have arrested five of Boko Haram's leaders. Uganda's decision to occasionally shut down social media causes an uproar. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour from myself as Pumalele Zondi producer, Luyanda Maume, technical producer Adrian Kenny and the rest of the team. Thank you very much for listening. Send us emails info at channelafrica.co.za On SMS, we're on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. You can also tweet us we are on Channel Africa One, that is Channel Africa One. On Twitter, we leave you with Women of Africa by the usual suspects. Oh, oh, oh.